seen you in here before. I said, I've been here a time or two. She said, hello, my name is Bobby Joe. Meet my twin sister, Betty Lou. And we're both feeling kind of wild tonight. You're the only cowboy in this place. And if you're up for a rodeo. Welcome back to the Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I am pinch hitting today for the great Bob Schaefer on Touch Em All. He gave me one bit of advice. He said, just don't screw it up, Dave. Don't screw it up. Um, now, that was a little tribute to Toby Keith there, just passed away. Uh, we did one to Carl Weathers last week with the Rocky stuff. So um, got some great music, great American right there. And you'll see in our new logo, we got the American flag right in the middle. So Today's guest now represents the American dream uh, like you've never heard before. He's going to share some stories with us uh, before we bring on who has been referred to me as the Lord of the Rings. I just want to thank our sponsors, Jaw Bats, RBG at checkout. We'll get you a discount on their great maple bats. Look for our our sponsors and, and partnerships with Bonet and Kinetic Arm by the end of the week. And to our marketing partner, Millions, thank you for your support. 67,074 countries tuning into this one today for Touch Them All. Um, but want to introduce our guest. They, they refer to him as Lord of the Rings, six championships, three with the Giants, three with the New York Yankees, has a ton of great stories, uh, baseball knowledge through and through. And he's a man that our very own Bob Schaefer says, no matter where he went on the road, he wanted to know where Lee Elder was, because not only were they going to talk good baseball, they were going to see good baseball and they were going to develop friendship, share some stories. So with that, Lee, welcome back to the show. Uh, we appreciate you coming on late, uh, late before a travel night, uh, but uh, too good a guest to, to, to not get on before you hit the road. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me back. I, I enjoyed it and I enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, we had a good time earlier today. I know we had a, a little bit of technical difficulties, so we're, we're going to okay. use some of that stuff. And we wanted to come back tonight and get some of these stories out there. But first story now, I was, you know, get your email to send you the invite for the show. And uh, I thought it would lead into a first uh, good story here. It's Caddy 147. What, what, where does that come from? What's Caddy 147 mean in your world? Well, Caddy 147, uh, uh, if uh, in the off season, uh, once October hit and, and waiting for uh, March to start back up, uh, that was my, my off season, basically. And, and I lived in Augusta, Georgia, and I had the, the territory there, the southeast. And uh, I lived in Augusta, Georgia. Um, I had a chance to... Uh, to uh, caddy at an Augusta National uh, during that that lull uh, from from October to uh, uh, to March. Actually, Augusta National uh, opens the second week in October and it closes the uh, the second week in May. It's closed all summer. Um, but I actually went down to, to Augusta National because I was I was almost uh, uh, bored, if you might say, because I was. That was my downtime. Uh, all my friends around Augusta were working. Uh, this was my off time. It was like a teacher's vacation. So uh, I wound up playing golf by myself and and, and trying to figure out, uh, you know, what to do. Uh, you can only do so much in, in your off time to, uh, to keep your interest. So um, I went down to uh, Augusta National. They It just so happens that they were just um, uh, having a change in the caddy program at Augusta National. All of the uh, – uh, the elderly old caddies that had been there since the 30s, some of them since the 30s, um, uh, they were, uh, uh, believe it or not, a lot of them still were working in their 60, late 60s and 70s uh, carrying bags out there. But um, 
Augusta National hired a, a county management company that came in and tried to clean up the system. They were having a few problems with the system. And um, so ironically, they had to come in and uh, I guess they had about 121 counties, something like that on the, on the, on their roster. And, uh, but with a new company, they had to give them background checks and, and, um, and, and drug tests and stuff like that. And uh, about 80 to 90 of them failed. So, so they were, they were in dire straits. They were getting ready to open in two weeks. And, uh, and they had only like 27, 30 caddies. Uh, and they actually needed about 70 to open uh, because you can't play at Augusta National without a, uh, without a caddy. That's one of the, the, the club rules. And so, uh, so I just went in there and I, and, and I told a guy who I was, I said, I worked with the New York Yankees and, uh, um, and I said, I'm, I'm looking for something to do. Uh, from October to to March, uh, and if you if you got any part time work, I'd be glad to accept it. And, uh, and of course, uh, his name was Tom Van Dorn. Uh, he was the caddy master, and he he asked me. He said, uh, uh, "Well, can you show up every day?" And I said, "I can do that." He said, "Do you know the rules of golf?" I said, "I do." Um, he says, "Well, you got the job then." He said, "And I'm going to make you a full time caddy, even though, or I'm going to give you full time status, even though you're only going to be here up until March." Uh, and we don't close until May. Uh, I understand you have another job. So I said, I'll be glad to do it. And then, um, and so he says, the first thing, we got to give you a caddy number. And uh, uh, he, my number is 147. And the reason uh, that they had to give us a number is because the way you got a bag at Augusta National, uh, every morning you came in and you took your chip, your little green chip that had your number on it, off the board and put it in a bag. And at 8 o'clock, they'd shake the bag up. And for example, if there were 20 members uh, with guests playing playing that day, uh, the first 20 green chips out of the bag uh, got to go put their put their number next to whoever they wanted to caddy for, which means you got paid that day. You know, uh, a lot of them, if if uh, you would just sit around and wait for maybe late members have maybe uh, decided if they wanted to play or not. But if you didn't get your number called, you you went back home. You didn't get paid that day. So. Uh, uh, and they did they did the the regular caddies full time caddies first and then they had the overflow they'd do the part time caddies but I was lucky enough to uh, to be put as a full time caddy and and uh, and that's where my my number one four seven came from. I love it. I love it. So if it benefited you to get put as a full time caddy. Obviously, you got put to the front of the line. Exactly. In, in the off season, important to get paid ba- uh, back when when you started because um, you know ball players had to work in the off season as well. So I'm sure scouts. Had to figure some things out too. Now, did you get the golf? Did you get the caddy for anybody famous, uh, actors, actresses, or even famous golfers that we would know? You know, I did. I um, I caddied. Uh, well, the, I guess the most famous golfer, of course, is Arnold Palmer. I caddied for him one time, and I tell you, Dave, that one time was enough for me. Not that he wasn't a, a gentleman, a nice man, but he had one of those old hot Z bags. Yeah. And and when I got his bag, when I picked his name that day and put my number next to his name after I got drawn. Um, I went out to that range and he must've had, he must've had 45 clubs in that bag. He had five woods. He had all kind of uh, uh, irons and, 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 and stuff in that bag. And when you, when you picked it up, it was a backbreaker. And, and, you know, caddies have to walk Augusta national. If, if uh, a lot of people that haven't been to Augusta national, I mean, you're going up and down hills from the time you walk off the first tee, and they're not small hills. They're they're down in the valleys and up up the side of hills. It, 
And uh, it was absolutely, when I, I'll never forget when I was coming up 18, I was leaning so far forward, my, my nose was about four inches from the ground. I was trying to put my weight into the getting up that hill. But uh, but he was a wonderful man, wonderful player. But he just liked to, he would hit a ball and then uh, uh, he would drop another ball and hit it, hit it again just uh, just as he practiced and as he played. And everybody understood that. But uh, um, so Arnold Palmer was probably the, the most famous uh, player that I ever played for. But I, I caddied for Prince Andrew. Um, I caddied for uh, Celine Dion, Michael Douglas, Clint Eastwood. Uh, Sean Connery. Now, Sean Connery, uh, believe it or not, he was he was a hell of a golfer. He uh, he was about a I guess about an eight handicapper, and uh, and he's competitive. Uh, he was he was extremely competitive. He he came over there as a guest of uh, of one of our English members, and and um and he was uh, uh it didn't matter that he was the guest of that <laughs> of that member. Uh, if the member had a, a two foot putt, he says Is that good, and it, uh, Sean would say not bad. But you got to go ahead and put it. He wasn't. He he wouldn't give anything up. He was so competitive, and uh, and most of the guys they were out there were were really really nice. They were they were really cordial. Um, uh, you know, we weren't supposed to address them by name or unless we were spoken to. But they, uh, every one of them, uh, uh, chatted with us the whole time they were there, and and just like it was just like they were our our best buddies, and uh, and all of them were quite generous with their tips. Uh, like I said, Clint Eastwood, Michael Douglas, Celine Dion, Nancy Lopez, um, uh, Prince Andrew. Um, uh, they were all, you know, I even caddied for Bill Gates. I caddied for Lou Holtz. I caddied for Warren Buffett quite a few times. Um, uh, it was all the pillars of society out there. I tell you, if, they, if you drop a bomb on Augusta National during the season, uh, you can eliminate about three quarters of the world's wealth because they're all they're all out there. Well, don't give anybody any ideas. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, but now that right there is enough story for a lifetime for one individual. But for you, that was just the, the off season right there. You mentioned, uh, and people know you as a as a super scout, scattered with the Yankees, scattered with the Giants. You'd mentioned George Steinbrenner. How on earth did you develop that relationship? Where did that start, and, and where, where did that take you? You know, George was a uh, uh, George was a, a, a unique, unique individual. I was I was happen happened to be living in the, um, Ocala um, uh, in the in, in the eighties and um, horse country, uh, horse country, and and that being a reason that George Stein, I met George Stein, but he had a he had a horse for him out there called Kinsman Stud. Uh, George lived full time in, in Tampa, but on the weekends he would come to Ocala. Uh, to be uh, to visit his horse farm, and his son Hank, his oldest son Hank, actually ran the horse farm. And his personal pilot, um, uh, a guy by the name of Don Steinley, lived in Ocala also. And so George kept his plane there uh, in Ocala. And and what George would like to do, uh, Dave, he would like to come on the weekends to Ocala, and he could kind of you know let his hair down, uh, you know, relax and. Uh, you know, have a cocktail if he wanted without worrying about the, you know, the press hounding him. And uh, there was a few of us guys around there that, here that the, uh, you know, he kind of took a liking to, and we were kind of his pack. Um, and now he already had a, had about five or six of them by the time uh, by the time uh, I met him. But uh, he just kind of he kind of took a liking to me because um, George was a great big military buff. I mean, he loved George Patton. Uh, just he was a reader. He was a uh, uh, a, a great uh, he had great knowledge of of, of military of the military and uh, 
one thing he found out I'd been to Vietnam and that, that was a, a plus in my side because he, he liked that. And he, he also know, knew that I played ball in college. And, and ironically, he had, uh, me being from Mississippi, uh, there's a camp, Shelby, uh, right by Hattiesburg in Mississippi. And George actually had been stationed there for a while. So a few of these things led to me being kind of let into that little group of, uh, of groupies that kind of kind of got with him when he came on the weekends. And, and I tell you, Dave, it, it was strictly guys. There was no, no wives involved and no, no girls involved. We'd go on, on, on little trips with him, you know, Kentucky derbies, pin relays, uh, Super Bowls, uh, Final Fours. Uh, he just liked to be around the guys and bring them. And we'd go to the, the uh, harness track. We'd go to the, uh, you know, um, just any, anything that was, uh, was sports related, George liked to go, go to. And, um, and so we became, you know, we became friends. And uh, uh, after about eight years, um, uh, I sold the little company that uh, me and my, my brother-in-law had had uh, working there in Ocala. And we were having breakfast one morning and he asked me, uh, he said, I heard you sold your company. I said, yeah, I did. And he, he said, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I said, I don't know. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll kick back and, 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 uh, and get into something. And he, at that time, he asked me, he said, would you like to come with the Yankees? And, and I said, oh, my Lord, the Yankees. I said, George, what in the world would I do? I said, I, you know, I, I'm an athlete and I played, <laughs> played in college, but I, you know, I don't know nothing about professional baseball or, or, or working with a team or what they do or, or and he says, oh, just, you know, just come in the front office. We'll have some yucks. We'll have some good times. And, and of course, right then I knew that that wasn't going to happen because you had in the front office, you had uh, Greg Nettles, you had Gene Michaels, you had all these uh, these pillars of baseball in, in the Yankee front office. And, of course, as a kid, the Yankees were my team because there was no team. Uh, the closest team to Mississippi was actually the St. Louis Cardinals back in the 50s because uh, the Braves were still in Milwaukee and Houston wasn't a – Astros wasn't there yet. So, uh, so, you know, the only baseball we got is we watched a, uh, all staff game of the week on Saturdays with Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee Reese. And of course the Yankees were owned by CBS. So the Yankees were on television every, every Saturday. So we grew up idolizing Mickey Mantle, Moose Cowan, Bobby Richardson, Elston Howard, you know, all the greats with the Yankees. And so to be asked to, to join this elite, elite, uh, franchise was just, it was mine by, it left me speechless, but I, I said, um, uh, you know, I, I, I got to say I was excited. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I said, uh, I said, uh, George, let me talk to my wife and, and, and see, see what she has to say. And so uh, this was on a Saturday and then, and George was going to have breakfast the next morning on a Sunday and then leave and go back to Tampa. So anyway, I went home and I told my wife and, and she turned out to have a real sharp, view of the situation Dave she told me she says you know something she said he's your idol right now he's all of y'all's idol and y'all you know y'all worship everything every step he takes but he says she said uh, I want you to think about this carefully because once you start working for him you know how he is and you know how tough he is especially on employees and she says I'm gonna fray I'm, I'm mighty afraid that um, you're gonna go from a dear friend to an employer and it's going to break your heart. And I said, wow. I said, I just, it just never crossed my mind, but it was, it was words of wisdom. It was good words. And so I thought about it all night. And the next morning I, I got up and I met George for breakfast and uh, he says, well, what'd you think? You coming, you coming on, uh, uh, coming with the Yanks? And I said, well, George, here's what I'll do. I'll do, I'll do one thing. 
I'll join the Yankees, but I want to tell you right now that I'm going to give it a year. Uh, and if I don't like it, I said I'm going to quit. So I don't want you to I don't want to be in a position where uh, I feel obligated to you because, uh, you know, you 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 gave me uh, so much money or you you opportunity. And then I, you know, I disappointed you. I'd rather stay your friend than, uh, you know, than than disappoint you. So I said, I don't want to go in the front office. I said, I said, where's the bottom? I said, you you let me enter in the bottom. And I said, uh, that way I'll see if I like it. And that way, if if I do happen to, to quit or, 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 or don't want to work anymore, I won't feel obligated to you. And he said, well, he said, oh, if that's how you feel, okay. And I said, well, where's the bottom, George? And he, he says, well, that's scout. He says, he says, that's the lowest rung, lowest paid rung. And uh, he said, that's some tough work going, going to some, a lot of, a lot of remote places. And I said, you know, at that time, I, thought, I said, well, George, I, that's good enough for me. I said, I'll let me start scouting and, uh, and I'll be glad to come. And, and, I, and then as an afterthought, I said, George, you think I'll, uh, I'll, I'll like this, this scouting? And he says, like it. He says, I hire these guys, they 14 handicappers. When I fire them, they scratch golfers. He said, I'm really playing golf on me. I just hadn't caught them yet to fire them. So, anyway, so it was a wonderful and, – and George was double-barrel sharp. I mean, he was, he was actually – his dad, Henry Steinbrenner, was an MIT graduate, and he started Steinbrenner Shipping in the Great Lakes. And George took it over once uh, Mr. Steinbrenner died. George took it over, and George is was responsible for most of the maritime laws passed on the Great Lakes. Uh, yeah, George knew how to wheel and deal. He, you know, he he uh, he did a lot of th- shady things. You know, with the you know you you got to. You got to see congressmen. You got to get in touch. With, you know, you get in touch with the right people who make the decisions, just like anything. You got to scratch the right backs. And George was a master at it. Uh, and George was fearless, but again, he was double barrel sharp. Uh, George was, and he was a he was a frustrated athlete. He he ran track at Williams College, uh, and he loved athletes. He loved being around athletes. He loved being around famous people. Uh, and that was that was George Steinbrenner, and and, and he he's responsible. I'll tell you, Dave, for everything I have. He he gave me the opportunity. Um, he stood by me. He you know when I had to give my opinion with the Yankees, uh, he took it as not a friend but as a as a worker, uh, which I appreciated. And the uh, but he he still uh, was gallant enough to every now and then invite me to have lunch with him and you know around Tampa uh, when because the first three years I was around Tampa, uh, and then after in the fourth years when I left and took over territory. So. Uh, Wonderful man, wonderful. Uh, and but but uh, again, uh, I'll say this: he was tough, tough, tough taskmaster. It was George's way or the highway, and he didn't care who you were, how important you were, how big or how small you were. It was his way or the highway. I think we appreciate him more nowadays than maybe we did back when he was running the Yankees, especially with with how our world is here. So. I love those stories about him. Now, how long were you were you scouting with the Yankees? I mean, you were with them through three championships, if I'm not mistaken. And you made a special, another special relationship while you're there. I'm sure you had a ton, but with with the likes of Brian Sabian. Um, t- t- talk to that a little bit. Yeah, you know, Brian was when when George when George first hired me, uh, he actually brought me to. Uh, there was two people working working at that time with the Yankees who kind of were the top guys down there in the, in the minor leagues. It was George Bradley. Who was kind of the uh, uh, the Yankees, like little, little, kind of like a general manager, 
uh, of the Tampa Yankees. Uh, and Brian Sabian was the was the scouting director. Now Brian Brian started out as a scout with the Yankees. Um, he was a he was a coach at University of Tampa, um, and he would he he became a scout for the Yankees. And his territory, believe it or not, when he started, his territory was all of Florida and all of Georgia. Wow. I mean, that, yeah, that was I can't imagine a scout one scout today or even while I was scouting having that much territory. I mean, you know, you got to see, you got to see as a scout, you got to see every high school uh, uh, that has a, a player name, every junior college, every, you know, every college, uh, just a tremendous amount of territory uh, in Georgia and, and Florida, uh, just geographically. Uh, and to have one man do it, uh, um, I mean, that, that tells you what kind of, kind of guy Brian is right now, but Brian, you know, Brian was very smart. He was very intellectual, uh, and he was tough. He was, you know, he was a he was a son of a, a postman uh, up in New Hampshire, and he was he was he was a New England kid that was that was tough, and you know, he didn't have money uh, at all. He came from a from a, a very very lean background uh, monetarily, and but uh, but you know, uh, Brian was a likable guy. And he he uh, he was a he's such a thinker uh, that baseball never left his mind. I mean, even at night going to sleep, he woke up thinking about baseball and, and he, he gave himself every opportunity to succeed. And he did. And when I started with the uh, Yankees, he was a scout director and, and, um, you know, he was, he was, uh, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you one thing. They, they thought George was famous for planting spies around the organization, even out at his horse farm to see if somebody was stealing steaks or, you know, stealing stuff from the, uh, from the, the horse farm. Uh, and they actually all thought, thought I was a spy because George brought me in and walked in with me and introduced me and said, I just hired him and he's going to be a scout. And, and George Bradley and Brian and, and Tedrow, and, and they're all looking at me like, you know, scared, scared to death because they don't know me. Uh, but they do know that, you know, George brought me in, George hired me, and I must be one of George's buddies. So nobody would talk to me for the first, I'm, I'm telling you, three weeks I was there, I'd sit around the, the uh, Tampa office, and uh, the only one to talk to me were the secretaries. Uh, and so finally, yeah, I think, I'll tell you what, in my opinion, what, what got me on the right side of Brian. Um, I would sit outside of his, of his secretary's desk every day, just waiting for something to do or somebody to tell me, you know, what to do or show me how to scout. You know, that's what I was supposed to be down there for. and. Um, at the time, that's when all scouts wrote the wrote their reports with the three carbon copies of the yellow, the white, and the pink uh, copies. And you know, of course, they would keep one for their files. They would send one to the uh, to the front office, uh, or send two to the front office. And then, of course, it was it was uh, uh, his secretary's job to to type all this information into a computer. Uh, well, luckily. Um, I was computer literate and, and I was typing. Matter of fact, even in Vietnam, I was a clerk typist. Uh, so I could, I could, I could fly pretty good on those, old, even those old machines typing. And uh, one day I just asked her, I said, you know, you got a lot of reports. Say, would you like me to help you enter these in? And she said, wow. And she, and so I started doing that for her and Brian happened to notice that. And it really touched him, uh, you know, that I would, that, that, that I would, you know, I was George's friend and I was sitting there and I would help offered to help her do that. Uh, and he just, uh, after about a, a week, he came to me, he said, you know something, I read you wrong. 
he said, uh, you seem like a good guy. And he said, uh, he said, um, uh, I'm going to start uh, sending you out to the games around Central Florida uh, that people have turned in. And I'm, I'm going to let you watch these people that people, have, other scouts have turned in. Uh, and that that's the best way to learn how to scout. And uh, and that's what I did. I started doing it that way. And and from that point on, Dave, Brian and I became uh, almost like two brothers. Um, you know, uh, uh, we were just inseparable. And and, and when he left in, in he left in '93. Uh, he even asked me to come with him because he went to take the job as the as the uh, assistant GM uh, of the San Francisco Giants. And um, and that time George was on suspension, so uh, um, he asked me to come with him. And I just felt I just I said Brian, I said I'd love to and thank you, but I I just can't abandon George right now. I said you know he gave me the start. And I'd like to just to stay here and 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 you know think I fulfilled my promise to him and. He said, okay, and off he went, and, uh, but I'll give him the, uh, uh, the kudos. He would, he would, we won in 96, and now I'm going to back up just a second. All the guys that we won with what, that were the nucleus of our championships um, start with Derek Jeter, Andy Pettit, Jorge Posada, you know, at the time Ricky Lede and, and, and Shane Spencer and and um, uh, all these guys, uh, uh, Bernie, uh, Williams, Bernie Williams, Gerald Williams, uh, all these guys, um, Sabe signed. When he, he was a scout director, he was responsible for these guys that was, was our nucleus. Um, and then so when, when he left, you know, uh, these guys came up in 95. Uh, they brought Jeter up and, 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 and Andy Pettit and Jorge Posada. And then in 96, Joe Torrey's first year with us as manager, uh, we won, won the whole thing, won the World Series. And we won with, with Brian's guys. And I, I, that always – I felt bad about that uh, for a long time because, uh, uh, you know, it was his guys. It was, it, was, it was his blood, sweat, and tears. And there he was without a ring. And, and we won in 96, 98, 99. And here I am with three rings, and he had none, and, and it really bothered me for a uh, for a long time. Uh, about a matter of fact, when I first started working uh, for him, he said, "Take that Yankee ring off and don't put put it back on." He said, "Next time, I want to see a ring on your fingers when the Giants win one." So I had I had to wait like like ten years without wearing wearing one of my rings, uh, uh, because Brian didn't he didn't like that. He didn't like that. Not that he was, you know, he was it was more teasing I think than anything. Yeah, I always get asked too, coaching collegiately for 20 years. People ask me, who's your favorite team? And I say, I have a hard time rooting for teams. I always rooted for the team that was paying me. So that's uh, – I don't blame him. I don't blame him for that. So you, yeah. you went with the Giants, had a great run there, three championships there as well too, right? Yeah, well, matter of fact, uh, I always tease Brian. Um, uh, he called me after, after the 96 season, congratulated me, asked me if I wanted to come with the Giants. I said, no, saves. I'm still good here. Called me at 98 after we'd won – Congratulate me, said, want to come? I said, no, still good. Called me in 99 and congratulated me. And at that time, Steinbrenner had kind of just, he was he was turning the, the Yankees over to his, to his sons. Um, and so I was losing that contact with George that I'd had through all those years. Uh, and George was kind of fading into the background. And so I felt at that time was if I was going to leave, that was probably going to be the best time to, to leave. So I when Brian called me and asked me if I wanted to come, I'd say, I said, yes. I said, I'd, uh, matter of fact, I do. Uh, and so I went with the, 
uh, as soon as the 90, our contracts were up in December. And so mine was up in December of 99. And uh, in January of, uh, of 2000, I signed with the, uh, with the Giants. And believe it or not, in 2000, the Yankees won again. So, so saves cost me a ring. It cost you one, yeah. It cost me one there. But, but then again, we did go to World Series in 2003 with the Giants. And, uh, of course, the Anaheim, we had, a, we had them down three games of two in Anaheim with, with a five-to-one lead in the seventh inning. And old, old Dusty came and took out Ortiz, and, uh, and uh, the rest is history. They scored, they scored four runs and, and, or five runs and, and beat us in, uh, in game, that game. And then the seventh game, they came back and beat us. So, so we were nationally champions in 2003. But then again, um, you know, Brian, Brian went to work the same way. Uh, and, and he got the, the basis that we needed for the 10, 12, and 14 champions, which was, you know, uh, Buster, Buster Posey and, and Tim Lincecum and, and Madison Bumgarner and Matt Cain. Uh, those were our, our nuclear players, our, the young players that you build around. Uh, and those were Brian's guys. That's the ones that, uh, uh, you know, that, that he got and, and formed the, uh, the championships with the, with the Giants. Um, so he did the same thing two different places, which is quite a, a testament to him. Yeah, another core four. And he obviously knows talent. I mean, he brought you with him as well and identified you early. Once he got past whether or not you were a spy, obviously he, <laughs> he got into that. So you mentioned Tim Lincecum. You were kind enough to share with me some information that you caught, you know, that caught your eye, but also you mentioned Dick Tidrow's name as a great evaluator of pitching. What made Tim Lincecum such a great prospect then, I mean, a couple of Cy Youngs early in his career, he was flying high and then dropped off almost immediately. Can you can you kind of chronicle that? I know I told you I'd get you out of here quick tonight, but I think the way you break that down is important, for especially for our young audience to hear. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, uh, uh, first off, you know, Tim Lincecum was a he was a uh, a one of a kind, um, a super, super, super nice young man. Uh, everybody loved him. Uh but I remember, I remember when, um, uh, when we were, he was in, in the draft, uh, we picked, I think, in the eighth spot or the 10th spot that year in the first round. And, of course, Tidrow, uh, Dick Tidrow was, was our, uh, he, he was vice president of everything. He was, he was Brian's right-hand man, basically, and, and uh, uh, he was a tremendous evaluator of pitchers. I mean, there's, I don't think there's another round like him. Uh, you know, he was a pitcher himself in the big leagues for a long time. Uh, and that's what he could, he could, he knew who could pitch and who couldn't pitch. He just had that talent. Uh, and I remember he came to, he came to Saves and we were sitting in there and he told Saves that he was, uh, you know, if we didn't get this guy, if this guy's off the board, uh, then, you know, our next choice would be this Tim Linscombe from University of Washington. And, you know, and Saves is looking, Saves is always quiet and, and he's in his own thought process. And he looked and he, he's noticing this guy's, you know, this guy's five foot nine and he, he weighs 100, 130 pounds, 135 pounds. And, you know, I, I'll go back to one thing. When we were with the Yankees, Steinbrenner's mentality was, you know, the big guy beats a little guy. You know, he had, to, he, he's German, uh, uh, Steinbrenner, and he had that mentality. He, you know, the, uh, the big race is going to beat the little race in any sport or anything. And so you better not turn in a guy under 6'2 to Steinbrenner because you had hell to pay if you try to 
convince him to, to draft a guy into 6'2". He wanted almost a football team. It was unbelievable. We couldn't – I mean, we had to actually hide guys that we drafted when George would walk over from lunch. Um, in Tampa, we'd he'd walk over to – we had to hide guys in the in the, in the the dressing room that were under under six foot. I mean, uh, uh, boy, the, the, the guy that um, – Oh, he's a coach of, he's a coach of uh, of the uh, Phoenix uh, uh, of the college in Phoenix uh, right now. It's it's kind of yes, yes. We had to hide him every time George came over. We had to he had to, we had to run him off the field and hide him because <laughs> George would have seen him. I mean we it, no, it, I mean it would have been hell to pay. He just George did not like small guys. Anyway, so. Uh, so anyway, going back to Sabes, he looked at that. He said, Dick, have you lost your mind? He said, this guy belongs in, in Ringling Brothers, you know, uh, with a, with a, uh, a monkey in, a, in, a, in one of those uh, things you twirl. He said, he said, can you believe I'm going to go to him and tell him, pay first round money to a guy this size? He said, they think I'm nuts. And, but Tidrow said the words out of his mouth, and, and I don't know if, if that's where the, the label came from, forever but the first words out of dick's mouth was he said saves this guy's a freak he said he's small he said he's got an unorthodox delivery he hops to, toward the home plate but he said they cannot pick the ball up he said i've never seen anything like it he's just it, there's something about him and, and uh so after much much thought and consideration we took him we took him and, and sure enough um um his dad uh, had a lot to do with 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 his grooming because his dad would um, would would take a it's like a dollar bill or, or something he would put it out almost at the end of the mound where Timmy would have to stride he he was trying to make Timmy stride to that dollar bill and well Timmy couldn't couldn't reach it because he, he wasn't a, a big man so he had to push off on the rubber and hop a little bit to reach that that dollar bill that his dad put out there. And of course, that left him airborne for a, a split second in his delivery. He was kind of hopping toward home plate when he delivered uh, the ball. So um, it was an unorthodox delivery, um, but the deception was there. And the, we finally figured out, or at least uh, I kept watching and wondered why he was so uh, uh, deceptive. And I noticed that you know he, his delivery was straight overhand, which wasn't three quarters. It wasn't one sidearm. It was straight overhand, uh, which normally is not a good delivery because that straightens the ball out. Um, and I don't care how hard you're throwing, a ball right over the top with no movement's going to get whacked. But they weren't hitting this kid. I mean, they were swinging at, at stuff all over the place. And, and uh, I finally figured out he was had his arm directly behind him. And when he hopped and landed, when the ball should have been, when his arm should have been right above his head, his arm was still behind him, hidden. And then his hand came around. Once he landed, his arm came through right over the top. Uh, and by that time, you know, I mean, he was throwing 96 to 98 miles an hour, so he, it was a power arm. But hitters had to start their start their bat early because uh, the ball was on them so quick. So actually, because of the deception of not seeing a ball, they were swinging at fastballs in the dirt, out the zone, up and in, up and away, uh, because they couldn't pick the ball up. Uh, and he did that, uh, you know, he, he, he never did have what you would call prime fastball command. 
Uh, his fastball, now he could throw the breaking ball for strike. He could throw the changeup for strike. And both of those were excellent pitches. But the fastball was his bread and butter pitch. But he was he couldn't hit the he couldn't throw it where he wanted to. Uh, if he if he happened to throw in a strike, it was just you know it was it was the luck of a uh, of a right release at the right time. But he just he had trouble doing that. Um, and I think that's what caught him later on as the the velo uh, started to decrease. You know he was magnificent in the first two year, three years. He won two Cy Youngs. He was top pitcher in baseball. He was unhittable. Um, but then. I'd say in his, his his fourth year and fifth year, you know, that velocity started coming down. And it's, you know, it's wear and tear on the arm and the body of a man that size. You know, it's, it's just uh, to have that much arm speed and that much torque going every every time, uh, you know, you're throwing, uh, that wears down on your body physically. And, and I think in the fourth year, he started to get, uh, his arm started to slow up some. Uh, his velo went down into the lower 90s. Uh, so at that time, now guys didn't have to swing his stuff out the zone anymore because they could see it. They could see the the the, uh, uh, the ball, and they could see where it was going. So all of a sudden, they were looking at ball one, ball two, ball three. Now they're heading to count, knowing he has to throw a strike, and they, and they whacked it. Um, but getting back to what made him so deceptive, um, I didn't realize until Tidrow told me that Linscombe was double-jointed. And that's the only reason he could pitch with that delivery, d- delivery because um, as any pitcher would know or any athlete or any baseball player right now, if you stick your arm right behind your body and come forward and you keep your arm there, it's almost impossible on your shoulder to bring your arm up and over the top and deliver a ball. You just can't do it unless you're double-jointed. It's, it's, uh, uh, your shoulder would be blown out in, in, in seconds. Uh, but that was his his secret. He was double jointed, and, and he he could do that. He was he was almost a, a contortionist, um, and he could bend his body any way just about he wanted, and that allowed him to have that magnificent deception he had uh, when he first hit the baseball scene, and uh, and he still had it. He still had the, the same delivery when he when he uh, uh, when he started to fail at the end. Uh, but he had just lost velocity. It was just a, the toll on his body, and. Um, and so the, the fastball wasn't that deceptive anymore. And that's the pitch that set up his other pitches, his, his changeup and his, uh, his, his curveball, because both of those were devastating pitches. But the fastball is what sets those pitches up. And he just, the velocity, the, the loss of velocity uh, uh, and, the, and the, the physical toll on his small body, I think, is, is what happened to him at the end. Well, it's certainly fun to watch. I hope our young kids out there are listening to you. You mentioned location is important. Uh, and, and, uh, something he learned, I guess, later on once he lost that velo and the deception wasn't as great as it had been. Now we, I told you I'd get you out of here quick and I appreciate you going over a little bit, but no I'd problem. be remiss if I didn't ask you for just a quick, quick two minutes. Uh, I know, uh, our very own Bob Schaefer, very special to us, uh, very special to me, developed a great relationship with him. I, I value his friendship and of course his baseball knowledge. You and Bob have a special relationship. Just give our audience a two-minute two glimpse into what, what makes Bob uh, so special to you and how, how you guys connect. Well, you know, uh, you know, I was always – I'll, I'll never forget when I started first scouting uh, on advice from Brian Saban. He said, I can give you one bit of advice. He said, when you go over and take a, out over a territory, he says, look for the older, the older scouts. He says, the ones, ones not the young guys, it's, it's more your age. Uh, you know, and that you want to pal around with, 
He says all the all the knowledge and all the success lie on those older guys. He says they 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 came from a much much tougher time. They know what to look for, and that's what I did. I went around uh, in in every ballpark. I started out you know with Lamar North. I uh, used to play was a catcher with the Yankees and and uh, uh, Squeaky Parker and 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 uh, Ellis Clary and 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 uh, Kenny Dominguez. All the Tommy Mixon. All these guys were were players and they're old kind of old salts, you know, so to speak. And, uh, uh, but they knew that it, it wasn't, there was more than just natural talent. Uh, you know, they, they were able to look in these kids' hearts uh, and see what kind of, what kind of, uh, you know, gumption they had. Uh, they were, they were able to recognize whether a kid will break down early or won't break down early. Um, they could sit there and they could watch a guy, take three swings and misses and they would get something out of that because they would watch how he adjusted to each pitch. You know, if, if it's, if he was just swinging on the same, same plane every time and missing, you know, then they knew he wasn't, he wasn't a guy, but if he was adjusting a bat and still swinging and missing, you know, he said, well, we can teach him how to, how to hit a fastball. He said, because he, he does have movement in his hands. Same way with fielding a ground ball. They, all of the old guys, immediately told me, they said, look for those bent elbows coming in on ground balls. If a, if a guy straightens his elbows as he goes down to get the ball, he said, that creates an ironing board. And he said, they said, that's not going to work. He's going to have hard hands. So all these little things that the old scouts uh, had were, were so invaluable. And, and they, they, they kind of tailored uh, how I went about looking, looking at things. And of course, as I became a, later on in, a pro scout, a major league scout, um, I did the same thing. Uh, I looked for the, I looked for the the uh, the guys, David, that I thought had been in the game, had paid the price, uh, had done the leg work, done the hard work. Uh, and Bob was Bob was about the epitome of that. You know, former major league uh, uh, third base coach. He was a manager in minor leagues. He was he was just. He'd, he'd rode all the old buses with the air conditioning and the windows. He, he was a, not like me. I mean, I, you know, I, I was never in pro ball to play it. I was, I was always a good athlete at a lot of things, but not great at anything. Uh, but, but he, you know, he, he walked the walk. Uh, and so, you know, I gravitated to these guys and, and I remember meeting, um, meeting Bob and, uh, I think it was in Chicago the first time I met him. And, um, and, uh, it just by chance, uh, we were sitting at a bar and we started talking and, uh, and, and the stories he had, uh, you know, about Lasorda and, and, and all the other guys and, and, uh, uh, and how they used to, what they used to do, how they used to do what they look at. And, you know, they wouldn't take anything. They would, they were gruff. They were tough. You know, if somebody wanted to fight them, they'd fight them. And, and that's, that's the guys that know how to shape success. Uh, nothing against the front office nowadays, but you got a lot of guys that, you know, hadn't, hadn't walked that walk. Uh, and, and I'll go back to the one, the one thing that he and I, he's the reason basically that, that I, I think that I, I looked at Scudero, um, with an, with an open mind and going in there with a closed mind and, um, and just to, just to hit on a Scudero's oh, please story, do, yeah. story, just a, just a bit, uh, um, you know, uh, Brian Saban, he called me, I was, I was a major league scout at the time and, and at first, I had the whole National League. I had to write up every player, whether they were we wanted them or not. Because you know, if you write up somebody, 
and 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 say they're not for us. That's just as valuable as seeing somebody that that is good, you know, in my opinion. So, um, you know, I had to write up every every player, and and uh, and Brian called me up. I was in Chicago doing the Cubs, and he he said uh, he said I need you to go to to uh, Arizona, and I said, well, for what? He said I want you to see. Uh, Marco Scudero, Colorado's coming in, and Scudero's at the second base. I said, I know who Scudero is. I saw him at Boston, and uh, and I said, uh, you're not thinking about taking him? And he said, uh, oh, yeah. And, and, and I said, as what? And he said, we need somebody to hit in the two spot. He said, we got Angel Pagan leading off, and Pagan's having a tremendous year. He gets on base, but he can't steal a base because the guy behind him can't take pitches or can't handle a bat. Uh, and so he winds up down on first base. And I said, uh, saves. I said, I've seen this guy a million times. I said, he's a below average runner, below average arm, below average field, a below average range. He's, you know, he's a, he's a, a decent contact back, but he's got below average power. I said, you, across the board, yeah. I said, do you really want me to, to, to fly across the whole United States to see a 40? And he says, he said, well, yeah. He said, you know, just, just go take a look. If you don't like him, you don't like him. I said, okay, good. I was talking with with Bob, who was at the game with me, and he said, "Let me tell you," he says, "There's a lot more to Scudero than than meets the eye." And I said, "Oh yeah." And and so so he he just told me about his makeup, about his his hand eye coordination, about his ability to to take pitches and stuff like that. And and, uh, and so I actually got on that plane. I went with a, a different view uh, of not just killing him because I I was going to go there and kill him, write a forty on him, and turn him back then fly back to Chicago. And so anyway, I went in there and three games set and I called Saves after, after it. And I said, uh, Saves said, how'd he do? I said, well, Saves, he, three games, got up four times a game and went 0 for 12. I said, but we don't have this guy. He says, really? And I said, yes. I said, first of all, I said, the 0 for 12, I said, 10 of the, 10 of the 12 at bats, he hit the ball dead on the nose. I mean, but he hit it right at somebody. I said, second of all, he can get to the balls he gets to. He's going to he's going to make the play. You know, he's he he knows how to position his feet. He knows how to get rid of the ball quickly. But I said the biggest thing going in his favor is that he took almost every count of every bat to three, two. I mean, he's got a phenomenal eye. He's got bat control. He's not afraid to hit with two strikes. And I said, this should give uh, uh, Pagan the chance to steal a base. He can move it. He can hit behind Pagan, going first to third. Uh, you know, I said, we don't have this guy. I said, this guy's a, this guy's, uh, a fit for us. And so, you know, it, uh, the rest is, is, is legend. He, uh, Saves picked him up and, and, uh, and Studer, uh, Scudero the last two months hit like 450. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he had, yeah, he just had a phenomenal end of the year, and then he wound up getting the MVP of the the playoff and the division series. And and without Marco Scudero, just in my humble opinion, we don't win the twelve World Series because, as you know, Dave, we played a team Detroit that was a monster team. They had Scherzer, Verlander, uh, uh, Porcello. They had they had, uh, Miguel Cabrera. They, yeah, yeah, Mickey. They were loaded, and I mean, they were. They, we were the, I think, a wild card team, and they were they were unbeatable, and we beat them four straight. Uh, and you know that's when the panda went off, uh, uh, Pablo went off with with the home runs, and and um, and and Scudero, Scudero had every clutch hit that you could have in a in a series, and so uh, 
So like I said, without, without the advice from Bob, uh, mainly that might not have happened. I might've gone in there with a negative attitude, looked at him and say, he saves, he went over 12. He's a, he's a midget. He's a bum, you know, and then that would have been it. We'd have still been looking for a two Oh hitter and probably wouldn't have won the 12 series. Well, Lee, I appreciate you coming back tonight with me for our episode 442 at touch them all. I was nervous pinch hitting for Bob Schaefer because you said he's a, he's a tough, tough bird. So uh, <laughs> I was very, hope I did you justice. You got a lot of great stories. We've got so many more to tell. We're definitely going to have you back. If you'll, you'll come back with us uh, at a later date. Would love uh, to, would love to. I think he gave our audience a 67,000, a treat, 74 countries. Uh, the great Lee Elder here had some great stories about Augusta, great stories about scouting. And of course, uh, love the stories about the prospects as we let into Bob Schaefer, our, our friend here. So, with that, uh, I want to thank our audience for tuning in. We appreciate your support. Thanks to our sponsors out there. Uh, thanks to, to our very own Bob Schaefer for letting me pinch hit for you tonight. And Lee Elder, thank you so much. And I wish you safe travels uh, the rest of this week. Thanks, Conley. Yep. Hang on with me just for a minute here. I'm going to play the music. And to our audience, have a great night. We'll look forward to you tomorrow. we got a triple header Thursday tomorrow. So have a great night.